Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at adces24.org. Hello and welcome to ADCS's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role and inform your practice. Today's podcast explores the latest in type 1 diabetes, separating fact from fiction, busting myths, and exploring the cutting-edge updates in the world of diabetes care. I'm your host, Dana Moreau, Director of DanaTech, and I'm thrilled to be your guide on this journey through the complex and really ever-evolving landscape of type 1 diabetes. One note before we start, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Anastasia Albanese O'Neill, the Associate Vice President of T1D Education and Clinical Implementation at JDRS. Dr. Albanese O'Neill transitioned to a career in diabetes care, education, advocacy, and research in 2008 after her oldest child was diagnosed with T1D. She's also the 2023 ADCS Diabetes Care and Education Specialist of the Year. Anastasia, welcome to the huddle. Delighted to be here. Okay, so today one of the key things we want to address is dispelling myths about type 1 diabetes. What are some of the common misconceptions or myths surrounding type 1 diabetes that you and others you know, encounter in your practice or honestly just out in the world in general? Dana, thank you so much for that question. It's really important because if we think about type 1 diabetes in the United States, at this time, it's only about 5% of diagnosed diabetes. And you are right. There are some really significant misconceptions. Let me start with the first one, and that is age of diagnosis. You know, type 1 used to be called juvenile diabetes. Why? Because we only thought it was diagnosed in childhood. But the truth is, what we know is that about half of people diagnosed with type 1 diabetes are diagnosed as an adult. So it is not a childhood diagnosis. It can strike at any age. We have volunteers at JDRF who have children who have been diagnosed at the age of two and at the age of 52. So we need not only people in the general public, but healthcare professionals to think about type 1 diabetes as a diagnosis and it can affect people across the lifespan. Number two, family history in type 1 diabetes is rare. When we think about type 2 diabetes, you can name all kinds of people in your family, sisters, brothers, parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents who have type 2 diabetes. Not the case in type 1 diabetes. 90% of the time, there is no family history, which makes it even more important for healthcare professionals to get it right, the diagnosis, because people aren't thinking about it. It comes most of the time, 9 out of 10 times out of the blue, and that is a challenge. And I guess the third thing I will say is type 1 diabetes affects people of all colors. And we know from uh, data from the Search for Diabetes in Youth study that the steepest increase is among uh, children of color. And so we need to be looking, again, not just um, at individuals of a specific race or ethnicity, but at everybody because this diagnosis can affect everyone. I mean, given some of these myths that you've just brought up, I imagine that maybe misdiagnosis, especially of older adults, is 
maybe not common, but not unheard of. It's more common than you think. A challenge, again, is sort of a legacy challenge in type 1 diabetes is because we've invested most of our research dollars in studying children and adolescents, we don't have a lot of data on adults. But what we do know from some recent publications is that about 40% of the time, people who are adults and actually have a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes are initially misdiagnosed with type 2. Think how dangerous this can be. People with type 1 need insulin. But in these cases, when they're misdiagnosed as somebody with type 2 diabetes, they're often given oral medications like metformin or maybe Ozempic, and they become progressively sicker and sicker and may end up in the emergency room. For the population we do have data on, think about this, children and adolescents, one in two in the United States, a full 50%, and this is in the standards of care from the American Diabetes Association, are diagnosed in diabetic ketoacidosis, meaning they are very sick at diagnosis. So two things, we want to catch it before you end up in the hospital. And number two, we want to be on high alert in the adult population. So it sounds like, Anastasia, that our knowledge of T1D continues to evolve. So my question for you is, I mean, what's next? So it's not just about new devices and new ways to monitor glucose and automated insulin delivery. We also have learned a lot more about the history, the natural history of type 1 diabetes and how it progresses from a very early diagnosis into the need to replace insulin. So let's just review. We think type 1 diabetes has a, people who are ultimately diagnosed have a genetic predisposition. But let me be clear, most people with that genetic predisposition do not go on to get a diagnosis. Right. In fact, 9 out of 10 don't get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. In fact, I'm walking around right now with type 1 diabetes genetic risk, but I don't have it. So many people have genetic risk out there in the world. We think that something in the environment triggers the immune system to attack the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas and destroy them. When that process gets underway, we can use now, thanks to decades of research, a simple blood test to identify what are called autoantibodies that tell us that the immune system, again, has marshaled an attack and is actually destroying the insulin-producing cells. So we used to think, okay, you don't have type 1 diabetes, and now you do have type 1 diabetes, and you need insulin. Not correct. In 2016, a paper was published that described the stages of early type 1 diabetes, and these are as follows. Stage 1 is two or more confirmed autoantibodies, but blood sugars are completely normal, and the person has no symptoms. The only way we know that this attack is underway is by doing a blood test for autoantibodies. People move on to stage two when enough of the insulin-producing cells have been destroyed for people to experience dysglycemia or high blood sugars. And these can be detected using an oral glucose tolerance test. And then stage three is when a person has a classic diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. People in stage two also have no symptoms, but people in stage three are as we would classically think of a diagnosis, that they are thirsty, going to the bathroom frequently, losing weight, and have very high glucose levels. So those are the stages of type 1 diabetes. Why does that matter? Well, the most important reason that it matters is because there have been a number of studies, both here in the United States and internationally, that have shown that if we screen you for type 1 diabetes risk as a child, and we follow you and provide you with some education, we can get DKA rates which are now, remember, one in two in the United States, down to less than 2%. And I want everyone to think about the impact of DKA. Expensive stay in the emergency room and in the IC, likely the ICU. But more importantly, 
the trauma for the individual, the trauma for the family, and starting off with a new diagnosis in that context. We have a very powerful tool to eliminate DKA at diagnosis, but we need to screen. Question about the stages. If someone is diagnosed with stage one, are they definitely going to move into stage three at some point? That's a great question. So from the evidence, and again, 40 years of studies, and I'm happy to point our listeners to a number of them, including Teddy, Daisy, Frida, TrialNet, um, ASK, there's been a significant investment in this space. The answer, unfortunately, is yes. If you have two or more confirmed autoantibodies, your lifetime risk of progression of type 1 diabetes approaches 100%. The challenge is we don't know when. It might be in two months. It might be in two years. It might be at 20 years. But once we see two or more persistent autoantibodies, we know again that lifetime risk is 100%. We think the progression is quicker in very young children. And it sounds like I mean, the screening process is pretty easy. You're saying it's just like, is it a blood draw? Is it a finger prick? What does that look like? Great question. It can be both. Um, so a couple of programs that I want to uh, draw uh, the listener's attention to that are really easy to refer to. The first is TrialNet. Many people have heard of TrialNet, but if you haven't, you should know about it. Go to trialnet.org. Any first-degree relative, ages 2.5 to 45, can be enrolled in this program. It's free, and they will screen you for autoantibodies. They can do it with a finger prick, a capillary draw, or phlebotomy, a blood draw. And they'll actually send a kit to your house, and you can go to a local lab and get the blood drawn. So it's not like you have to fly somewhere or drive somewhere to do it. They also screen second-degree relatives. So remember, first-degree relatives, parents, siblings, children. Second-degree relatives might be grandparents, grandchildren more likely, and cousins, right? Aunts and uncles. So they will screen second-degree relatives, but the age range is narrower, 2.5 to 20. And then I want to draw your attention, this next study is for anybody. So anybody ages 1 to 17 in the United States, so the parents would need to give consent, they will screen anybody, family history or not, for type 1 diabetes, autoantibodies, and also for celiac disease. And that's called the ASK study. And um, you can find information about both studies. It might be easiest to go to the JDRF website, jdrf.org forward slash T1Detect. We try to keep up to date on any screening opportunities for healthcare professionals and individuals. So those are up there and you can easily leak out and learn more. Yeah, great. I didn't know though that that uh, test for both uh, type 1 as well as celiac existed, which makes so much sense because I know so many people with T1 who also have celiac or suspect they do. So whoever thought of that, nice job. <laughs> Some great scientific minds out there. So yes. Again, that's so much new information about screening, but tell me more. I mean, t- really tell us what is the importance of knowing whether you're stage one, stage two? I love that question, Dana. Let's keep it related to screening. So we do have research studies recruiting right now, literally as we are speaking, for people in stage two type one diabetes, Why are these stages important? I feel like I didn't share enough about that. Because if we discover people in stage one, more importantly, probably stage two, who already have some changes in their blood sugar levels, right? And they have those persistent autoantibodies. There's a study recruiting right now that's funded by the National Institutes of Health called Stop T1D. If we can screen people in advance and we can identify them, we can move them into that study. The other important thing about screening, um, Dana, is that A lot of our research around therapies that change the course of type 1 diabetes, that protect the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas, we, of course, like all clinical research, we initially test those therapies in healthy individuals who don't have type 1 diabetes. But then that next phase of study is with people at new onset. Here's the key. Remember, 
The immune system is attacking and destroying those insulin-producing cells. So if you're going to enroll in a study at diagnosis, you need to do it usually within the first 100, 120 days. If you wait for a diagnosis and you're in diabetic ketoacidosis and you're in the ICU, it's hard to be thinking about research. But if you've screened, you know you've got two or more persistent autoantibodies, you're under the care of a healthcare professional who is giving you advice, and then you find that you need insulin therapy, that you're in stage three type 1 diabetes, you need to replace insulin, that is a much better place to think about, do I or do I want to enroll my child in research? So Dana, boiling it down to one sentence, what are the three primary benefits? First, we know from research, as we discussed, we can reduce the incidence of DKA at diagnosis from about 50% all the way down in many cases, in many of our studies, to less than 2%. That's a tremendous benefit. Second, people can be introduced, especially if we pick them up when they have two persistent autoantibodies, but they don't have to take insulin yet. We can introduce them to really important clinical research that can help us figure out how to prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes. And third, it gives people time to plan and prepare. Nobody wants a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, but it's much better to have it occur in a way that's more managed than to end up in the ICU. And I know that because I lived it with my child. And so I really think it's important that uh, we give people the time to get ahead of that diagnosis. And I understand that with my son, we were probably about a week away from it. Uh, but with most of the people and friends I have with type one children as well, they definitely ended up with DKA. And uh, it's a painful place and a scary place to be. All right. So before we end today, Anastasia, is there something that we missed, something that you really feel would be important for healthcare providers to know? I mean, about screening or again, other recent developments in type 1 diabetes. Thank you for that question. I think that I was trained as a nurse again back in 2007, 2008 when I did my initial education. We weren't talking about continuous glucose monitoring very much. We weren't talking about automated insulin delivery. And we weren't Certainly, we're not talking about the ability to detect type 1 diabetes early and intervene. So I think for anybody out there who's listening and this is new information, it's a great opportunity to learn more. I know there are resources on the ADCES website and great opportunities at clinical conferences and for more online education. And if you are familiar with this information, share it with a colleague because I cannot guarantee that everybody has heard of staging, has heard of screening, and has heard of these amazing new management tools we have in type 1. That's terrific. Well, thank you, Anastasia, so much for being our guest. And honestly, just thank you for everything you're doing. Please follow Anastasia on different social media platforms or on LinkedIn to know what she's up to. Literally on her LinkedIn profile, it says, on the hunt for a cure for type 1 diabetes which I love. So again, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back as a guest or we'll be seeing you in numerous other places in the future. And thank you for, for you personally and for ADCS for being a partner in this work because this requires a big team and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to share this information and to work with your extraordinary organization. So thanks for now. We love it. Thanks, Anastasia. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Huddle. Make sure to download the resources discussed on today's episode. You can find them linked in the show notes at adcs.org forward slash podcast. And remember, being an ADCS member gets you access to many resources, education, and networking opportunities. Learn about the many benefits of ADCS membership at adcs.org forward slash join. 